The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital. This budget thing is going to do nothing. Space Force, I still think it's interesting. President Trump not playing his cards yet. Headlines, policy, and politics colliding. Bloomberg, sound on. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA. The Senate map in 2020 looks a lot different than it looked in 2018. You really have a divide within Team Trump. The president has to do exactly what people sent him here to do, which is to get it done. This is Bloomberg, sound on. On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I, I'm June Grasso sitting in for Kevin Cirilli. Well, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell starting off the year locked in a stare down over the terms of President Trump's impeachment trial, the political risks for both sides. The FDA is banning fruit and mint flavors of e-cigarettes, but not tobacco or menthol flavors. Is that the answer to the epidemic of underage vaping? And another Democratic candidate drops out of the race, shrinking the field of candidates to 14, still a large number. Well, e-cigarettes have been blamed for an epidemic of underage vaping, and today the federal government announced that it would ban fruit and mint flavors of e-cigarettes. Here's Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar. President Trump and America's public health officials will not stand idly by as a new generation of Americans becomes addicted to tobacco products and nicotine. Joining me is Jackie Lee, Bloomberg Law Reporter. So, Jackie, tell us what is and what is not covered under this new ban. So what, what is covered under the ban is, like you said, fruit and menthol um, flavors in cartridge-based e-cigarettes. So that means that there, this is a pretty large exemption for what's called open tank systems and for vape shops where people go in and they mix their flavors themselves, they mix in the nicotine themselves. Um, it's also not entirely clear uh, whether or not, I mean, it looks like other combustible disposable products are also going to be exempt. Um, some people have raised concerns about that through the footnotes and some of the guidance. So it's actually a pretty large exemption that's been carved out. So in September, Azar had initially proposed a far-reaching ban on all flavored vaping products, with the exception of those that taste like tobacco. Was it lobbying pressure that led to this scaled-down ban? There was definitely a lot of pressure from the industry to scale it down. Um, also, the, the We Vape, We Vote uh, block is very vocal, especially online, um, and there was a large outpouring of, of criticism from adults who have switched from combustible tobacco to e-cigarettes, saying that, you know, without the flavors, they would just go back to regular combustible e-cigarettes. There was also a huge backlash against the small business community. This is an industry, um, vape shops are are one of the small business communities that have have grown significantly under this administration. And so there was a lot of pressure, um, both from the tobacco industry and from small businesses, to kind of curb back that initially aggressive Labor ban. So are any health organizations saying whether they approve of this limited ban or whether they think that only an ex- expansive ban will help? 
So the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Cancer Society, American Heart Association, you know, Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, all groups like that are really pushing back against this, um, this what they call a watered-down ban. Um, they are now really asking for parents to step in and really push for change. They're, they're pushing for states and cities to implement their own bans if the federal government won't do it. Um, Democrats, uh, including you know, Senator Patty Murray, has come out and said that this just doesn't go far enough. So there's definitely a... Um, a very critical group of this ban. So several cities have moved to curb flavored uh, e-cigarettes, flavored vape products. Has that mm-hmm. has that been successful? So there have been um, some efforts on a local level to cut back on how teens can access these products, um, but it's not the the bans aren't. Uh, consistent state to state or even city to city. Um, It's kind of too soon to say whether or not they've been completely effective. Um, Some of the bans also exclude menthol products as well, um, which is a huge criticism of of this federal ban. Uh, So it's it's really too soon to say whether or not this has had the uh, hopeful expectation to really cut down on, on teen use. And finally, what are the penalties here? So the FDA says that it will um, it'll consider enforcement action against companies um, after that that continue to sell products that are fruity or minty um, after 30 days once this guidance is posted in the Federal Register, which is expected early next week. Um, so the enforcement action is uh, is could be through something like a warning letter or eventually. Um, you know, having that product taken off the market. All right. Thanks so much, Jackie. That's Jackie Lee, Bloomberg Law Reporter. And this disclaimer, Michael Bloomberg, founder and majority owner of Bloomberg News Parent, Bloomberg LP, has campaigned and given money in support of a ban on flavored e-cigarettes and tobacco. Coming up, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell are starting off the new year locked in a stare down over the terms of President Donald Trump's impeachment trial. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm June Grasso sitting in for Kevin Cirilli. Well, two weeks off for the holidays produced no new negotiations on what the Senate impeachment trial will look like. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, of course, has held up delivering to the Senate those two articles of impeachment. Officials in her office said she and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer are in lockstep on what that means. Schumer says that neither the president nor Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has given a single good reason for not calling witnesses. McConnell and Trump do a lot of finger-pointing and name-calling, but they never refute why these witnesses should not come, why these documents should not be there. So which side might this delay backfire on? Joining me is Lincoln Mitchell, political analyst and Democratic activist who teaches at Columbia University, and he's in our New York studio. On the phone, Dan Perkins, author and Republican commentator. So, Lincoln, I'll start with you. How long can this can the House Speaker hold out here? Who has the cards? I don't imagine this will last very long, that much longer. Both sides want to get this going before the Iowa caucus, and I suspect this will get worked out. We'll have the acquittal by the time we go to Iowa. It's not really clear who holds the cards here. The both of them have a reasonable position. Mitch McConnell's position is you voted for the impeachment, pass it on, 
And Nancy Pelosi's position is you've said publicly you're not going to conduct a fair trial. That's your constitutional duty. You seem to have abdicated that duty. What do we do? So that's the stalemate. Whether or not they, they call witnesses, ultimately that's going to be, I think, McConnell's call, and he'll probably win that fight unless he can get unless Chuck Schumer can get four Republicans to go along with him, and I don't imagine that happening. So, um, Dan, it seems as if the Democrats are trying over and over to bring up different reasons why there should be witnesses. Are they putting any, and we've heard from some Republican senators like um, Susan Collins, who've said, well, I'll be open to hearing from witnesses, but not saying that they're going to require witnesses. What do you think it looks like? Well, I, uh, with all due respect to our other guests, I, I think this is going to wait until the general election. Uh, if you think about the, this whole issue of calling witnesses, um, the witnesses that the Democrats want called are the ones that they have picked. When they, with, if there's going to be witnesses and the Republicans start wanting to call people like, I don't know, Hunter Biden or Mr. Schiff or Mr. Nadler, or Miss Pelosi, uh, they're going to have uh, some problems with that. I don't think she wants to put any Democrats of current office holders or previous office holders, um, she wants to put any of those in a witness chair in a Senate trial. So she's going to do everything she can to stop the trial from happening, even though she's saying, and when she, when she said she was going to put the veto in her pocket, I predicted that like a month before because I don't think she wants to take the risk of putting the Democrats and let the Republicans call whoever they want to call because they're in control. They want to try and control the trial by saying you can only call these people and you only want these documents. Well, McConnell's not going to do that, and, and he's going to do what he wants to do, not what the Democrats wanting to do. So if she doesn't really want to have the trial, in reality, she wants to keep this hanging over the president all the way through the election. So just a couple of quick outcomes. If the Democrats maintain the majority in the House, she can release it anytime she wants. If they don't win the presidency, she can still release it. If they lose control of the House, I believe, and I've written this in many commentaries, I believe she'll release it in the lame duck session of the Congress as a little going away president for uh, Donald Trump, starting his new term as president with an impeachment trial. Well, that's interesting. So, Lincoln, would that actually help the Democrats who are in the swing districts, in House House Democrats in the swing districts that Nancy Pelosi wants to, wants to help out? Well, it is a fascinating scenario, and I'm certainly open to that happening. I don't know for sure <laughs> what's going to happen. If this drags out in the way the other guest has suggested, and ultimately some kind of a compromise where maybe witnesses, either witnesses from both sides, which is what he seems to be suggesting, that's the compromise, or there's no trial. My sense is that this election is, a lot of it is already baked in. Donald Trump's campaign is going to be, the economy is good, it's better than it was, vote for me. And the Democrats are going to want a campaign on health care, guns, and the environment, and the impeachment itself, everyone's just going back to their corners. I think the big story of 2020 is that impeachment is going to matter a lot less in the election, both for the White House and for the contested House, and don't forget the Senate seats, than people think. There are a handful of exceptions. Susan Collins is going to be a tough place. Cory Gardner is going to be a tough place. And Doug Collins, the Democrat in Alabama, will be in a tough place as well. Yes. I'd like to throw an alternative spot there. Sure. Um, I've done an, a number of interviews, and I've heard a lot of discussion, and you just raised the issue. What about the 30 de Democrats that might be in play? I'd like to suggest that maybe there's 215 Democrats that might be in play. 
because we've made the assumption that other, if, if the 235 or 237 or the number, only the people in play are the 30 that are in states where Trump won, that's, um, that's to me, that's a false premise because you got to look at the rest of them. And, and do you really believe that 100 percent of the remaining Democrats are going to get reelected? I don't think so. And I think that could be the surprise of the election is that we focus so much on the 30. We haven't spent any attention with the other 215 or 210 that are also running for reelection that could be replaced. I mean, there's always the scenario that anything can happen, right? None of us have a real crystal ball here. Most of those Democrats, I think you meant the districts that Trump won, not the states that Trump won. Right. But most of yeah. the other Democrats are in pretty safe seats, right? I don't see, I don't see somebody in inner city Philadelphia, Cleveland, and uh, a Democratic suburb of Boston being in jeopardy here. The numbers there are running for impeachment pretty highly, just as they are nationally. This, this, I don't suspect this cost uh, Nancy Pelosi. The, the majority. They're Democrats the majority. I also think the one thing we never talk about here is the potential cost of not doing this. If Pelosi had not done this, the demands from the Democratic activist base, which we now see is almost a majority of the country that want to see this, would have been pushing her and pushing her and pushing her. So if she didn't do this, then a lot of her Democrats would be uh, susceptible to primary campaigns. But the notion that more than a handful of Democrats are going to be in jeopardy because of this, I just don't see any data to back that up. But I think it's it's very interesting what you say, Dan, because, you know, who would really push Nancy Pelosi to hand the articles of impeachment over at this point? I don't know if any Democratic House members or Republican House members are really going to have any influence on her as far as that's concerned. Well, she's no, going to keep that's... her caucus together. That's what pushes her. If the, if the majority what? of Democrats say you've got to turn this over and she feels like her speakership is in jeopardy, that will push her. But there's been nothing in her time as leader of this party that's even come close to that happening. So I don't think, think that's really going to be an issue from within the party. And Dan, what do you, what do you think any, is any effect had by President Trump's tweet wars with uh, Nancy Pelosi over the last few days? I think that, 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 that Nancy Pelosi put herself in a position and and she didn't want to have Democrats testify. The, your guess is correct. He, he she wanted to deal with the, with the pressure from the far left. So she passed. She she had this great. She was telling everybody this great sense of urgency. And then within minutes after it's passed, she decides it's not as urgent. We're going to sit on it because we have to verify whether or not there's going to be a fair trial. Well, when when the and Senate majority heard, leader and other senators say. Not we have to verify, but there will not be a fair trial. My job is to protect the president. She has good reason to think it's not going to be a fair trial. And that is something serious. You know, Marco Rubio yeah, today, who is supposed to be one of the rational ones, says we don't need any more witnesses after the House. That is not what the Constitution was meant. The House, if you want to talk in legal terms here, is the, is the grand jury passing down an indictment. There is supposed to be a trial in the Senate. And as far as I'm concerned, there can be negotiation over who the nom- uh, who, who who testifies? If Hunter Biden, for example, as as you suggested, is called, like I don't think that's I don't think that gets to the point. I think ultimately that backfires on the Republicans. But it's not a crazy idea. It's it's a it's a silly idea because it perpetuates a Russian talking point about Ukraine hacking our elections. A, a, but it's not perhaps out of bounds, a crazy entirely. idea that the Democrats would like. Rudy Giuliani says. He wants to testify. I think the Republicans right. would do everything within their power <laughs> to prevent that. I mean, just just to start with, who only knows who would accidentally call up on the phone while he's sitting in that chair? So, Dan, would that ever happen in our lifetime? Was it Rudy Giuliani might testify? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think there is a very good possibility that he will. 
I mean, understand that, that the, the Democrats are running from, and I've written about this many times, their playbook. Their playbook is even if they're not in power, they're trying to control the agenda. They're trying to control things. That's called politics. And we saw that happen when we we saw that when Schumer came out and said he he was demanding that these witnesses be called and these documents to be released. Then we have Nancy Pelosi came out. I mean, one of the things that we we haven't even talked about is based on what Nancy Pelosi is doing is she's saying that she wants to circumvent the Constitution and she, as the Speaker of the House wants to decide who the witnesses might be and determination whether or not it's a fair trial. There is no basis in the Constitution for her to do well, that. Well, there's, there's, no, right. there's there no laws in the Constitution. There's no nothing in the Constitution that determines what a trial should look like. So she's not exactly circumventing the Constitution in that regard. Uh, there's but, also, but I mean, it is, a, it is a gray area, what, what defines a fair trial, right? So we could argue about that in a normal case. When the leader of the Republican Senate had said there will not be a fair trial, there, that's no longer a gray area, and that's where we are. So I, I think that Nancy Pelosi's in a tough situation here. The Senate, Mitch McConnell, has abdicated his constitutional duty here to have a fair trial, and that is the, is, is the nut of the problem. I would just want to go back to, to, to Giuliani for a second, because, of course, we don't know if Giuliani's going to testify But we'd all love not. to hear it. Come on. It would be a lot of fun. <laughs> but, but, but to me, this gets to another issue. I think the Senate... Uh, leadership on the Republican side is smart enough not to have Giuliani testify. Mitch McConnell, if he had his way, would not have the Hunter Bidens, the the Rudy Giuliani's, the Adam Schiff's testifying. He would do an open and shut, no witnesses, get the acquittal, let's go on with our lives. Because he's a strategic, I may not agree with him on everything, but he's a smart, or anything, a smart strategic politician. What Donald Trump wants is a show with high ratings. And that is probably not in the best interest of the Republican Party. So it's easy to think of this as a partisan fight with kind of Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats and Chuck Schumer on one side and the Republicans on the other. But I don't think there's consensus on the Republican side either. All right, we're going to... Do you, do you think that the, the, the sitting Democratic senators who, who have already spoke out in favor of impeaching Donald Trump are fair and impartial? Well, I think that this is this is a this is are. a political this is a political process. This is not a trial as we know it. This is a political process. So it's really right. different from any other trial and fairness is probably in the eye of which side of the aisle you're on. But let's take a break now, right now. Coming up we're going to be talking about another candidate has left the field for the Democrats and also some fundraising numbers that may surprise you. Who's ahead on fundraising? It starts with a B. That's coming up on Sound On. I'm June Grosso. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm June Grasso sitting in for Kevin Cirilli. Another Democratic presidential candidate has dropped out of the race. Julian Castro, the former housing secretary and mayor of San Antonio and the only Latino in the presidential race, announced the decision on Twitter today. I'm not done fighting. 
I'll keep working towards a nation where everyone counts. A nation where everyone can get a good job, good health care, and a decent place to live. He didn't say what he would be doing next. I'm joined by Dan Perkins, author and Republican commentator, and Lincoln Mitchell, political analyst and Democratic activist. So that leaves that leaves a field down to 14, I believe, which is still a huge field. But it's also the latest departure of a candidate of color from the field that began as one of the most racially diverse ever in a Democratic <clears throat> primary. So, um, Lincoln... What's your take on that? Why did he Why did he not catch fire? Castro, Castro was an intriguing candidate, and there certainly was a way early on that he could have been, a, you know, one of the final candidates. He did some of the things right. He got in early. He did his work. The problem that I see that happened to him is there was at least three, and here I'm talking about Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, three frontrunners with enormous name recognition that took up a lot of the oxygen. And in what was at one time like a 26, 25-person field, it's very, very hard to break through. The only candidate that's really gotten in play here who wasn't one of the heavyweights to begin with was Pete Buttigieg, who did enormous uh, and very good media work very early on. So I think Castro, who has on paper a very good resume, was damaged simply by the field, the size of the field, where he kind of everyone liked him, but no one really liked him best. I also don't know that we're done hearing for him. He would be a very interesting running mate. Uh, for example, for Elizabeth Warren, a Warren Castro ticket would make a lot of sense. And there is a good kind of vibe between the two of them. And, and Dan, uh, do you see his departure in any specific terms? I am amazed that the Democratic Party <clears throat> has decided that, they're, based on who's left in the, in the case, with the exception of Pete, is that the likely candidate of the, of the Democratic Party for the presidency in 2020 is going to be an old white person. Well, I have to say that 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 is sort of the way it's going here. Let's look at the the fundraising. Joe Biden had his strongest fundraising quarter yet during the final three months, but he still trails at least two of his key opponents. He raised $22.7 million in the fourth quarter. That puts his haul behind Bernie Sanders, $34.5 million. That gives Sanders the biggest war chest of any Democratic nominee. Pete Buttigieg, $24.7 million. Elizabeth Warren hasn't reported her fourth quarter total. So, Lincoln, right. what does that tell you about who's going to be the Democratic nominee? Well, you agree with Dan? I I. I think it's very likely it's going to be an old white person. You never know 100 <laughs> percent. But I think the data certainly suggested that, that we, we are. Uh, he's right about that. Um, this is a very, very there's a couple things about Bernie's fundraising that's worth noting. A uh, caveat here is that Sanders and Andrew Yang, who came in around 16.5 million, have raised more money combined than Donald Trump, which is an interesting spin on what we've seen the last few months. Sanders's fundraising total is is impressive for a couple of reasons. One, simply the sheer numbers. The sitting vice president or the former sitting vice president, who is the, the favorite of kind of the moderate pro-business part of, of the party raised about two-thirds as much as, as and an experienced politician, too, as Bernie Sanders. But secondly, what really strikes me is how Sanders turned the whole fundraising paradigm on its head. Right. Ten years ago, this was idea was if you wanted to be a purist and only get small donations and not take money from billionaires, et cetera, et cetera, you were never going to have a lot of money. And what Bernie Sanders has done is he has said, well, actually, I am going to take that. I am going to take that route. And he's raised even more money. And that is really a tribute to him. Does that mean he's going to be the nominee? You know, it's still too early to tell. It does suggest to me that he is very likely going to be in the thick of things. Bernie Sanders, I think maybe Joe Biden, but also, but Bernie is the only one who I see who has a very good chance of finishing the top two and certainly the top three in each of the four states. And if he does that, 
he's going to go in uh, to Super Tuesday, and it'll be a th- probably a, a two- or three-person race because Bloomberg will get at that point and change the field a little bit as well. So, Dan, I have been trying to figure out the Bernie Sanders phenomenon for a while because he, he has a heart attack. I thought, well, that's going to slow him down, at least at least by the numbers. We're not, he's not going to get as many donations. But then he bounces back, and he, and he surpasses Elizabeth Warren. What do you make of his resiliency? Well, I think it it, it's, it speaks well that he's he's attracting some uh, some members of the Democratic Party who are disenchanted with the with the extremely far left. But I I think that that we're again there's another story we're missing which I've written about several times. Um, <clears throat> I don't think that if we have three to four candidates going into the primaries, there's going to be any one candidate who's going to walk into the Democratic convention with enough delegates to win. And I think you're going to wind up with an open convention. And I am predicting, unless she's in an orange jumpsuit, that Hillary Clinton is going to be the nominee for the Democratic Party. Oh, Does the jumpsuit match Donald Trump's hair? <laughs> um, I, I think there is, a, there is a decent chance that happens. It's not going to be Hillary Clinton. It's a fun scenario. And she is old and white, so that does fit in with the paradigm uh, <laughs> right. you've, you've been working but with. But she's also one other thing. She's also one other thing. What has the Democratic Party built itself on on the last 40 years? The party of victims. Is there any more victim than the way, quote, Democrats feel the election was stolen away? Oh, I mean, I think if I think that would be I don't necessarily agree with that. But if that's the case, it'd be a fun kind of victim off because Donald Trump is, you know, the biggest victim in the world, as we know. Um, One thing that is that is significant about Bernie on this race is that. Bernie, the story of 2016 that the Sanders supporters told. Now, now I am really genuinely uncommitted. I don't know who I would vote for tomorrow. The only candidate to whom I've given money has dropped out of the race, and that was Kamala Harris from my hometown. <laughs> so, so I really am genuinely uncommitted. But there's a couple things about Bernie that are notable. He lost in 2016. It was not as close as a lot of people thought, and he lost because he didn't do his work. He ignored communities of color. He spent the last three or four years trying to reverse that, and he has campaigned very hard in community of colors. In most many polls, he's leading among younger African-American voters, and he's very much in the thick of things in, uh, among Latino voters. And w- if you want to look at Sanders' resiliency, that's part of it. The other thing that strikes me about Sanders is he is not nearly as far left as either his supporters, this kind of socialist to which you were alluding, or his opponents suggest. I mean, I was reading, this shows you what a nerd I am, but I was reading Harry Truman's memoirs over the last- Oh, that is. That is nourish, but still good. Over the last month or so. And his healthcare proposals are to the left of what Bernie's talking about. So he, he comes out of a kind of a mainstream liberal Democrat Well, he tradition. wrote the bill. I well, he didn't he write said. it for Harry Truman. Um, <laughs> yes, but he did write at least this bill. Are and, you sure about that? And he's mobilized a lot of younger supporters to think, wow, this is something exciting and new and socialist. We've never done this before. And he's kind of taken what have long time been mainstream democratic policies and repackaged them as socialism, which I think helps him get far. It may not help him get far enough because you get to a point where some electors, election uh, voters kind of shy away from that word, as, as I'm sure we all know. So, and, and, you know, the, the, is he the oldest candidate in the race, isn't he, at this point? Yes. Yes, he's yes. older than Biden. And he um, attracts young people. So this is why he's always been very, very sort of a, but a mystery he, to me. He's, he's, there's a certain, he has some interesting political instincts. He picks up on issues that, for example, Bernie Sanders is the only person who's taken on the financial powers in Major League Baseball that are trying to destroy minor league baseball, which is a completely obscure issue. Unless you live in one of the 40 cities, many of which are in swing states, where minor league baseball is a part of the local economy and an important recreation. 
right? So that he's a smart politician. He's not an effective legislator. I mean, Bernie Sanders is not a newcomer. He's been in elected office for 30 years, and he's been in the Senate for more than a decade, and the House more than a decade before that. He hasn't really done much. And his vision of the political revolution, and I'm trying to say this in a value-neutral way, if you advocate for a political revolution, but you don't want to get rid of the filibuster, you're not being serious. So there are some things he has to work through here. So, Dan, what, what do you think of a, of a Bernie matchup with Trump? How about um, Reagan, too? A Bernie matchup? Um, I, sorry. Go ahead. Go, sorry about that. I, I'm, I'm, I, have been for, I have been suggesting for some time that whoever it is that is the nominee for the Democratic Party, if they continue with their their tax and spend policies, bigger government, taking things away from you, giving more and more away and taxing more, it will be a landslide of historical proportions. That's a and, fun That's a fun what? Republican talking point. That's not I mean, I think and, and, and I think that as long as Donald Trump continues to behave like a criminal, he'll lose 45 states. And we keep saying partisan talking points. But well, what, what we know now, this, this is the thing, health care. I'm I'm surprised that there hasn't been a Republican plan yet, because obviously there is an attempt to kill Obamacare on many different levels. The, the Republicans are as a party aren't interested in in governance in that sense. Right. There are issues here that the voters that are undecided care a lot about. Right. And I think that's I mean, the data shows that's health care, that's the environment, and that's guns. And, and throw in the economy. There no, no, the, and the, but the economy, yes, and the economy. And, and the economy is going to be what it is. If it continues this strong, that's going to be a help for Trump. And if it doesn't, that's going to hurt him. It's not really in anyone's control. But in terms of policies, the Republicans aren't proposing policies because the people that are coming up with these policies are no longer welcome in this, right? Michael Bloomberg, who we talked about earlier, is in most countries what the leader of the more conservative party looks like. Low taxes, low spending, not exactly, I would say, conservative on race issues, but thoughtful on guns, the environment, and health care. That's the profile of a conservative politician in most countries. There's no room for that in today's Republican Party. So all that is being ceded to the Democrats. So I want to say, of course, that Michael Bloomberg is the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the parent company of Bloomberg News, and he is seeking the Democratic presidential nomination. Dan, I'll let you, before we take a break, I'll, I'll let you respond to that. I really think that that what's important that what's important to the American people is that what's happened is there's been a fundamental change. I've talked about this many many times. Even in a country of 330 million people, one person can make a difference. When we were going through the malaise of Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan came in and said, "I think we can do better," and he won in a landslide. Because the people wanted to do something different. Barack Obama came in with hope and change for the Democratic Party and for the people and won the election on a promise. One person made a difference. Donald Trump came in and said he wanted to make America great again. One person made a change. And so I think we're still, even in a country as large as we are, that one person can make a change. And the change that the left in the Democratic Party with with free college and free health care for everybody and free health care for illegals coming across the border are not themes that will resonate with the vast majority of voters come November. All right. We're going to talk more about what's coming up 
in November, as well as President Trump starting off the new year, facing impeachment and re-election at home and ratcheting pressures abroad. Remember to download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. I'm June Grasso sitting in for Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm June Grasso sitting in for Kevin. Well, President Trump starts off the new year facing impeachment and re-election at home and ratcheting pressures abroad. The New Year's Eve attack on the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad by an Iran-baked Iran-backed Iraqi militia has exposed a deepening divide between Washington and Tehran. And North Korea's Kim Jong-un is saber-rattling, saying he'll soon debut a new strategic weapon. Before heading into his big New Year's Eve gala in Florida, Trump said he still thinks he has a good relationship with the North Korean dictator. He did sign an agreement talking about denuclearization, and that was signed, number one sentence, denuclearization. That was done in Singapore, and... I think he's a man of his word, so we're going to find out. But I think he's a man of his word. I've been talking with Dan Perkins, author and Republican commentator, and Lincoln Mitchell, political analyst. He teaches at Columbia University, and his new book is called San Francisco Year Zero. And there's more after that, I know. Yes. <laughs> Lincoln. So what, President Trump has touted his uh, diplomatic prowess. What do these developments tell you? Well, diplomacy is difficult. And, and in fairness to the president, Neither of these situations, Iran or North Iraq and North Korea, were easy going in. And in fact, you know, back in 2002 and 2003, a lot of people said, you know, if we go to war in Iraq, Iran's going to get a lot more power in the region, right? This was a problem that was not only anticipatable, but was actually, in fact, anticipated. What we've also seen is that the president who touted himself as this dealmaker, this negotiator, is not a good negotiator. I, mean, I was talking to a friend of mine who works in baseball, and I said, if Donald Trump ran, you were running one team and Donald Trump ran the other, you would trade with him all the time because you'd know you'd always get the better end of the deal. So right now he had, uh, particularly North Korea, he had the summit with Kim Jong-un, which was a good photo op and a good story, didn't get what he thought he got, and, and misread Kim Jong-un, despite the fact that I think most people who work in foreign policy in the United States would have advised him what Kim Jong-un was really about. He chose to ignore that. And now we're back to where we, we, we've always been there. So, um, Dan, former National Security Advisor John Bolton said in a tweet on Wednesday that the U.S. should fully resume military exercises with South Korea in response to Kim's threat. Of course, uh, President Trump stopped those exercises as uh, a means of uh, getting... North Korea to come to the uh, table. What what do you think of what Bolton has said? Well, he's uh, first of all, I think he's a, a hawk, uh, which is okay. He's allowed to be a hawk. A good president has opinions from lots of different viewpoints, and uh, Bolton has his particular viewpoints. As it relates to uh, North Korea, I, I, I'm not as quick to abandon and say that he's a poor, that Mr. Trump is a poor negotiator. I look at what happened in the renegotiation of trade treaties with Mexico and Canada and Europe and Japan, um, and the work that he's doing with with uh, with China uh, doesn't say to me that he's a he's a bad negotiator. As it relates to the attack on the embassy, um, I think that uh, the president has basically, and when he said there's not going to be another Benghazi. And he brought in 4,000 troops 
Uh, some people were asking me today on interviews, uh, are we are we going back to war? And I said, 4,000 troops in in Baghdad is not enough troops to attack Iran. So get that out of your brain. What they're going to do is secure the property, and they're going to send a message that we're not messing around. We're, we're, we're going to react quickly, just like we did with Assad in Syria. We're going to react. When you do something that's wrong or against mankind, we're going to react. All right. We, we and have reacted. About- I just want to give Lincoln 30 seconds to respond. 30 seconds. And the, the the problem in Iraq, Donald Trump ran saying he wanted to get out of Iraq. And what we've seen is just how intractable this is. There's always a reason to stay in, always a reason to send more troops. I don't necessarily think Donald Trump did the wrong thing by sending those troops there, but I don't think it's going to solve the problem. All right. I want to thank you both for joining me this evening. That's Lincoln Mitchell. He's a political analyst, teaches at Columbia University. The book is San Francisco Year Zero. And Dan Perkins, author and Republican commentator. I'm June Grasso, sitting in for Kevin Cirilli. We'll see you again tomorrow night. This is Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.